people's consciences in the born-again Bible-believing churches have become dulled and more and more accepting of things that they would never at one time accept. And one of the greatest victories that the devil is pulling off in our day and one of the greatest deceptions he is pulling off is to shorten the message of God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the 11th chapter of our study of the book of Romans. Now, 9, 10, and 11 are the chapters of Romans that deal with the nation Israel. And we saw in the 10th chapter that Israel had rejected Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And because of this, and unfortunately, many Christians throughout history have turned against the Jewish people. However, we'll see here in chapter 11 that God is not done with Israel that he still loves them, and that we as his church ought to as well. Paul now goes on to warn us. He tells us there's something we as Gentiles must do. And as Gentiles this morning, we would be very wise to heed his warning. And so beginning now in verse 17, the Apostle Paul gives us an allegory. You know what an allegory is. It's a symbolic illustration that has deeper meaning behind it. And so there's some famous allegories in history like Pilgrim's Progress or Moby Dick or Animal Farm. And God gives Paul this allegory based on an olive tree, because in the Old Testament, one of the emblems that God used to describe Israel was that of an olive tree. In fact, it's called in the Scripture, the land of olives. And when you go to Israel, one of the things that captivates your attention is there's olive trees everywhere. They, they grow like our state weed, the palmetto tree, you know? And so Jeremiah can say, the Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. So we're not surprised that God would liken Israel to an olive tree. But if some of the branches were broken off, now stop right there. Let's ask, who are the branches? It refers to the Jewish people who come out of the root. Those people who are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the Jewish people who came out of the root, if they are the source and these branches that come out of the root are broken off, just like there's a relation between the first lump of dough and the whole thing that follows, please notice, if some of the branches were broken off, and I have that word some circled in my Bible, it doesn't say all the branches. Remember, we've been studying here that God has always had his remnant. There's always been a remnant of believing Jews, but those branches who have rejected Jesus, if they're broken off, now notice what verse 17 says, this is the meat of the word, pay attention. But if some of the branches were broken off in you, now he's talking about Gentiles who are believers, that's virtually all of us sitting here, if some of the branches were broken off in you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, that is the remnant of Jewish Christians, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now comes the prohibition, verse 18. Therefore, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's the warning to us as Gentiles. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Don't be boastful. 
Don't you as born again Gentiles, now that you are on top, now that you are enjoying the blessings of Israel, don't you be boastful because remember, you were grafted in. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. God is reminding us that we are not superior to them, either racially or by the fact that they are out and we are in. We are only in because of our faith in the Lord Jesus, and they are out because of their unbelief. And so he warns us again in verse 21. Look at the text. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jews... He will not spare you either. That is Gentiles. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, unbelieving Jews, severity. But to you, that is Gentiles who believe in Jesus, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, please understand, verse 22 is not teaching you can lose your salvation. Paul, more clearly in Romans and more emphatically and in more detail than any other epistle in all of the New Testament, describes the eternal security of the believer, that once we are saved, we are saved forever. Don't miss the point of this illustration. Paul is not discussing the people who are Jewish individually, but those who are collectively Jews in the same way he's describing us as Gentiles collectively. And there's a warning here to Gentile believers believers who collectively believe in the Lord Jesus that we don't want to miss. Do not be conceited, but fear. I have that underlined in my Bible. Now, unfortunately, there have been times in the history of the church when true born-again believers, when they thought of Jewish people, became conceited because they were in faith and the Jewish people were not. And there's coming a time when the Jewish people are going to be in and the Gentiles are going to respond because they are in because of the mercy. It would be like life from the dead. By the way, when when the Goldsteins finally came back to their house, it got better for us. We moved into our brand new home in Seabrook. And it's going to be like life from the dead. Blessing beyond imagine. But understand, if we do not heed the warning of God, There will be grave consequences as well. And there's coming a time when the majority of Gentiles in this world are going to hate and oppose Israel. We've only seen the start. It's going to be worldwide. Even the United States of America will oppose Israel. All the nations of the world will come against Israel. And what is it going to bring for them? Horror. It's called the Great Tribulation Period. And there have been times in the church when God's people have not heeded this warning and it's brought grave consequences. Now, I love Martin Luther. Many of you know him as a Protestant reformer. He was a man who was in the institutional church, 
who was an unbeliever. He was religious but lost, but began to pour over the Scriptures. And it's usually the Reformers who get most of the press, but understand there were people who were never a part of the institutional church who were on the outside in congregations like this. They weren't a part of Roman Catholicism, and God had an unbroken chain of Bible-believing Christians all the way from the first century. Some who were never a part, but these who were a part of this worldwide church got tremendous attention because of what they did for good. But Luther made some great mistakes in his theology at one point as he began to think in a less than biblical way about the Jewish people. When his ministry began, when he first came to Christ, he had a great heart not just to reach the Jews for Christ, but Gentiles alike. And he was battling a day when, for the most part, the Jewish people, by the institutional church, Roman Catholicism, were, quote-unquote, in Luther's words, treated like dogs. And he thought that was a horrible thing to do. And so he wrote a little paper, a little treatise called That Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. And he wrote these words in 1523. Listen to them. He says, therefore, I would request and advise that one deal gently with them, meaning the Jews, and instruct them from Scripture. Then some of them may come along. So long as we treat them like dogs, how can we expect to work any good among them? If we really want the Jews to come to faith, we must, they must be guided in our dealings with them, not by papal law, but by the law of Christian love. And understand, the Jews were not treated favorably under papal law in that day. We must receive them cordially and permit them to trade and work with us, that they may have occasion and opportunity to associate with us, to hear our Christian teaching and witness our Christian life. If some of them should prove stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are not all good Christians either. Now, unfortunately, 20 years later in 1543, he had become utterly frustrated with the Jews in Germany because of their unwillingness to convert to Jesus Christ and because many of them had become very vocal in blaspheming the Lord Jesus. And so he committed a grave mistake, much like Calvin. He allowed his experiences around him to influence his theology. And Christians do the same today. They're driven by experience and they take their experience and they read it through the lens of Scripture. So someone said, I spoke in tongues, therefore it must be biblical. And then they find a a passage of Scripture to baptize their experience in. Whereas our experience should always be subservient to the Word of God. We don't interpret the Scripture through our experience. We put our experience under the Scripture. And so Luther wrote in 1543, describing Jews, he said, a Jewish heart is as hard as a stick, a stone, as iron, like a devil. Now Luther, of course, never held the Jews responsible for the death of Christ. He wrote a great hymn, and there was one phrase in the hymn, let me read it from you. He said, we dare not blame the band of Jews, ours is the shame. He understood that he was pierced through for our iniquities, it was our sin that were the hammers that nailed those nails into the cross. Not to mention, Luther understood that it was the death of Christ that purchased his own salvation. So he didn't have anything like that against the Jewish people, saying, well, you know, they crucified our Savior. But the Jews had become very blasphemous in the way they spoke of the doctrine of the Trinity, and the way they spoke of the Lord Jesus and even Mary. And of course, he lived in a day when the church and the state were connected, When some of the Anabaptists spoke of separation of church and state, they're not talking about what we're talking about today. 
What they were against is when you made the church and the state one entity. That's what Calvin did in Geneva. And so when a man had some theological heresy like Michael Servetus did, Calvin had him shot. He had him, he had him or actually he was, he was burned at the stake, that particular person. In Luther's mind, he bled the two together and he knew because there was a state church like there is today in Germany, that blasphemy was punishable by death. And he feared not only uh, for the Jewish people as much as he did for the evangelical church. He was afraid that they would be connected to some of these blasphemous statements. And so Luther wrote another little paper. It's entitled on the Jews and their lies. And he said that German princes should take action against the Jews. Let me read a portion from it. He said they could burn their schools and synagogues, transfer Jews to community settlements, confiscate all Jewish literature, which was blasphemous, prohibit rabbis to teach on consequences of death, deny Jews safe conduct so as to prevent the spread of Judaism. You could appropriate their wealth and use it to support Christian converts and to prevent the lewd practice of usury. And he said you could assign Jews to manual labor as a form of penance. And if you've read his treatise, and if you remember church history, they carried these measures out. Now understand, I don't want to have to apologize to Martin Luther when I, got to when I get to heaven. He didn't do this because he had a racial issue with the Jewish people. He did this because he had a theological issue with the Jewish people. But because he taught what he taught, it actually plowed the way for what would follow. Luther did not read Romans 11 carefully. And so what happened? When Hitler came into the power, what did the German Reich do? They quoted Luther. They said Luther, quote, was a genuine German who hated Jews. And what happened? God took his hand after Luther slowly off the evangelical Lutheran church. And today about only 3% of the German population are born-again Christians. Paul gives a warning. Now let's apply it to our lives today. Three simple applications as we close. Number one, we should walk in humility. We should walk in humility. A growing biblical faith will express itself in a life of humility. We just read the direct admonition here in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And I find that very interesting because there is a direct parallel even in our own United States church history between churches and denominations and the way they view Israel. And so churches and denominations that came to the theological conclusion, like Luther did, that the church is the new Israel, Luther put a different spin on it than the Catholicism of his day, Catholics said, we are now the chosen people and the chosen church. But when Luther came to faith and he and men like Calvin and Swingley and Melanchthon, they said, no, 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 no. The church, the institutional church is not the chosen people. They're not the new Israel, but those of us who are born again. And so they thought they were the new Israel and God was then done with Israel. And it brought great disaster. 
Listen, I cannot forget what God said in Genesis 12 and verse 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Gentile arrogance in not viewing Israel in a proper way, that they are still the root and we are just wild branches grafted in. That's Gentile arrogance and that will bring disaster, whether it's outside the church or in the church. My heart beats faster every time America supports Israel, but my heart begins to beat super fast when we oppose Israel. And it's very interesting to note in the history of churches and denominations that there is a direct connection between opposing Israel and that church or denomination going into liberalism. And so today, most Lutherans, sadly, there's a conservative Bible-believing branch, but most, most Lutherans are in total unbelief. The United Methodist Church is totally apostate, promoting abortion and homosexuality. The United Church of Christ, totally apostate. The Presbyterian Church USA, not to be confused with Reformed Presbyterians or the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, but the Presbyterian Church USA is also apostate. What's interesting with those three denominations is those four denominations is they all began to oppose Israel. And God began, Gentile, born-again Christians, that they thought, well, we're the new Israel. That's opposition to Israel. That's arrogance. And God just lifted his hand off of those denominations. And it led to then later on a rejection of the scriptures, and now today, total apostasy. Last year, ever before the current conflict, 15 mainline denominations in the United States got together to formally write a document to oppose Israel. We don't want them to receive our financial support, and neither do we want the United States to support them militarily. One expression of arrogance is to oppose Israel. And of course, there are many expressions of arrogance in the Bible, and any expression of pride or arrogance is, will always lead to a person's downfall. I meet these Christians, they think, oh, the Lord's Day Sunday, you know, if it's convenient for me to go to church, I will. It's no big deal. You know, I'm born again, I'm going to heaven. What difference does it make? That's arrogance. Oh, tithing, you know, who needs to do that? Feeding on God's Word. Well, I'm glad you're so sanctimonious, Pastor, but I'm going to feed on the Internet. And pride always leads to a person's downfall. Peter warns us, all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And we will lose our influence as individuals. We can lose our influence as a church, as a denomination, as a people when we become arrogant, and one of the heights of arrogance is a people or a person who opposes Israel. Listen, I've got a lot of friends in the reform movement, and I love many of those dear brothers, but they are dead wrong to say that they are the new Israel, and God has done with the people of Israel. That is only going to further feed Bad theology that will disseminate into a lost world that will lead America to the rejection of supporting this nation. Number one, we should walk in humility. Number two, we should fear God. 
The second direct exhortation comes from verse 20. Do not be conceited, but fear. The word conceited is two Greek words that literally means high thoughts. Don't think high thoughts of yourself. So God says, don't be conceited, but fear. The word fear is phobeo. We get a word phobia from it. You know what a phobia is? Some of your translations render this fear. Others say tremble. Others say be afraid or stand in awe. Remember, Paul is addressing true believers at the church at Rome who are currently expanding and experiencing the blessings of God. But just because we are standing strong for the Lord today does not mean that we're strong and standing strong for Him tomorrow. I meet a lot of Christians who start well and who run the race well, even in their 20s, their 30s, and their 40s, but in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they putter out. The Bible warns us, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Don't be conceited. Don't have high thoughts of yourself. By the way, how much time do you think thinking of yourself and how much time do you think thinking of God? Don't be boastful. And certainly don't be boastful as you think about it in this context that we are on top and the Jews are below us. Oh, no, 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 no. Third, we should courageously share the whole truth of God. We need to share the whole truth about God. You say, where do you get that application? Verse 22, because Paul is sharing a complete picture of God. And it just popped out at me this week because our culture is so different today. We read in verse 22 of both the kindness and the severity of God. Now, the world would rather have us just speak of the fact that God is love, not God is a consuming fire, not that he's a God of wrath. They want to hear the kindness of God. They don't want to hear about the severity of God. And so the severity of God is devoid from more and more pulpits across America every Sunday. I was reading Revelation chapter 21 this week, and I connected in my mind the two events. John wrote, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He's speaking of that future time. We'll look at it next time of the great tribulation when the Jews are going to believe in Jesus as Savior. And there will be Gentiles who will as well, and those who will not give in to the Antichrist. Those are the true believers. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. That's why Jesus can say the one who perseveres to the end, he will be saved. We overcome by genuine faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, John said. But then he makes a contrast with the unbelievers who excluded from heaven. Notice verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral people and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, God doesn't want us to be cowardly and unbelieving. That is to mark an unbeliever, not a true believer. We are to proclaim all that God is and all that he stands for and all that he taughts, teaches. God hates sin. But the sin that is covering our land and the consequences that it brings is being soft-pedaled or not spoken of at all. Sin is not anything new. It's been here with us forever. But what is new is that in American evangelical pulpits, we're no longer talking about it. 
And there is an epic drought in our land, in evangelical pulpits, not only of a misunderstanding of the Word of God, but an absence of the full teaching of Scripture. You see, speaking of the wrath of God does not fill seats. Speaking and preaching against sin does not make people feel comfortable. And so we don't want to do that. In unbelievers, they make judgments every day, and God calls us to make judgments. John 7, 24, Jesus commands us, judge with righteous judgment. We are to make judgments, but those judgments are to be based on the Word of God. And because a truncated message is being preached, people's consciences in the born-again Bible-believing churches have become dulled and more and more accepting of things that they would never at one time accept. And one of the greatest victories that the devil is pulling off in our day, and one of the greatest deceptions he is pulling off, is to shorten the message of God. Behold the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Paul preached it, and we should as well. If you know Christ as your Savior... Sometimes when you speak with unbelievers, they will not even begin to see the need for a Savior until they see both the kindness and severity of God. So we've repackaged Jesus. You need Him to have a better family, to have a better sex life, to have a better job, to have more money, to have healing, and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes but not because you are a sinner and your sin is an offense to a holy God and the wrath of God burns against it. And so people don't see the need for a Savior. They have embraced a different Jesus in our age, what Paul calls another Jesus. The Joel Steen Jesus. Not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Now, if you've never met Jesus Christ, please meet him in his kindness and his mercy and in his grace. Because if you don't, you will meet him in his severity for all of eternity. Now, our Father, we thank you for this word from your book, the Bible, that you've given for us, that this is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying. May we have ears to hear it today. I pray today for someone who is here who is not sure that heaven is really their home. Help them to know that all of your severity and all of your wrath was taken out in a substitute who in our place bore our judgment so that if we call upon him, your resurrected son, you would save us. Help someone today to believe what you said, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Would you do that? Would you say there in your seat, wherever you are listening, in your car, in your living room, here in Bluffton, would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Father, for those of us who have come to understand your severity that moved us to go to your kindness at the cross, May we represent the Lord Jesus faithfully, fully, completely. May we preach the whole counsel of Scripture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message, God's Olive Tree, 
download the Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. Just ask for program ROM55. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And be sure to listen to Audrey's Rare But Real podcast, which is available now on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Next Monday, we'll wrap up our time in the national section of Romans. Join us then as we search the scriptures.